0: From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker windon
1: I can't believe I'm 92 and. But I am, and uh, my father said to me, But he says that when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. The first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person. Talking to another person. Listening. Uh, We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one Mouth and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love Ending with, I love you, I love you, thank you.
2: Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I am Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our listening and studio audience, and to come be a part of this local independent community radio station here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight is a special edition of our program because of our collaboration this month with Long Story Short, the live storytelling program hosted by Beth LaMontagne Hall at 3S Art Space, also in Portsmouth. True Tales Radio was at 3S on Wednesday, May 18th for the first half of our collaboration and tonight we welcome Beth and three long story short tellers here. We're glad to have them. We're also glad to have Portsmouth Public Media TV The crew is here taping tonight, small crew, Chad, it's Chad, crew Chad, so that you can watch True Tales TV Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. on Channel 98 or stream it at ppmtvnh.org slash live. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? And Emily Spaulding, author of Red Clay Girl, who believes that when you share your story, you never know who you might touch. So, here's how tonight's show is going to progress. We have six storytellers, three from True Tales Radio and three from Long Story Short, on the theme of finding your voice. Each will be introduced by Pat Spaulding. Then we'll share a true story from their lives. They have up to 10 minutes for their telling. There's no rating or voting. This is just plain good old storytelling. Um, for our True Tales storytellers tonight, we have John Tilly, Craig Worth, and
3: myself, Amy Antonucci. And from Long Story Short, we're going to have Dagan Megerditch. Christy Martino and Mark Michael Adams
2: So I'm now going to pass the mic on to our MC Pat Spaulding to introduce each storyteller. Welcome Pat
4: Thanks Amy Hi y'all First up we have a storyteller from Long Story Short Dagan Migradich Has been living in Portsmouth since 2008. Having spent a large majority of that living behind a bar, he's worked the stick at a number of restaurants and most recently opened Liars Bench Beer Company with his longtime friend and mentor. Liars Bench is located on Islington Street, not very far from here. When Dagan isn't working, he's usually trying to figure out a way to get back on the clock, he says, (laughs) back to work. I don't know why. In tonight's story, he will recount his relationship with his parents and his writing, and why the precise location of a family rhododendron almost sent him into therapy. (laughs) Let's find out more in, (laughs) why did they move it? Stegan?
5: Thank you. First and foremost, before I begin, I've been told by those who do these things on a somewhat regular basis that it is important to warm up one's voice prior to performing. So if you'll bear with me for a moment. Bumblebee, bumblebee, bumblebee. Perfect, okay. (laughs) Um, Unlike most high water marks in my life, I can pinpoint not only the precise date, but the exact time I found my voice. It was September 2nd, 1986. The the clock read 1.42 in the afternoon, and uh, much to my dismay, I was not looking nearly as tip-top as I would have liked to. I was nude, completely. Um, My head was misshapen. I was so severely jaundiced I was basically glowing. Uh, (laughs) I had a stork bite on my forehead, a discoloration that I still have and that blushes when I get angry or drunk. Uh, There was a lot of commotion going on. I just had my old food tube snipped. Dad had done the snipping, uh, and then some quack doctor whacked me on my backside, or vice versa. I'm not certain the exact chronology, but at some point I'm told I started to wail. Uh, I was a baby. (laughs) I was in possession of a working set of vocal cords. I'd just gone through an event that at the time was the most traumatic of my life, and as a reward for having prevailed, I had been egregiously smacked on my little derriere. Uh, (laughs) Such treatment did not sit right with me, and I expressed my dissatisfaction i found my voice rarely have i stopped making use of it now if this sounds like a blasé treatment of this evening's thematic prompt it is forgive me and apologies to the moderators but for me the idea of finding one's voice ranks right up there with everything happens for a reason in the hierarchy of commonly dispensed treacherously deceitful advice i mean i recognize there is virtue in the sentiment but uh more often than not the takeaway isn't inspiring it's radioactive Uh, I don't believe in voice, which will now sound immediately contradictory because you know who have found their voice? My mom and my pops. Uh, Mom and dad, those two I can say unequivocally have found their voice. It airs on NBC from 8 to 10 every Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Y'all familiar with the voice? If not, the setup is this. Uh, There's a series of contestants, there's a stage, and then there are a series of judges. Uh, The judges are all picked to represent a broad swath of the TV viewing demographic, and all are seated with their backs to the performers. In the first few episodes, various contestants trot out on stage and start belting out some hit favorite, hoping that one of the judges will smack a button, swivel around in their chair and choose that contestant for the judges team. Once on the judges team, the contestants are coached as to how to truly sing. Uh, Then they're all pitted against one another and eventually a season victor is crowned. The Voice is a two hour affair, um, but more often than not, my parents end up watching the second hours. Wednesday and Thursday, because come the halfway point, they're cocked out. (laughs) One on the couch, the other in the recliner. One silent, the other snoring. It's a nightly occurrence, one from way back. Mom and pop passed out in the living room, the TV blaring some hit show of the moment. Um, I don't like to see them this way. I never have. It isn't cute. Uh, They don't look peaceful. They look frail and vulnerable. and It is altogether unsettling to see your parents looking so weak, especially when the soundtrack is some preening 17-year-old belting out, Mama just killed a man. <laughs> um, although I often struggle to show it, I have endless love for my parents. They are funny and empathetic and deeply committed to one another. A large portion of their lives were eaten up, working dull drone-like jobs, the duties of which I can barely describe in order to build and maintain our family. I don't mean to paint them as lazy when I talk of their habit of falling asleep in the living room. They were tired. Um, And I'm the true benefactor of their hard work. Because of them, I was raised to feel safe and secure. I was raised to believe I could be anything I wanted to be, which if you've ever seen me with a screwdriver, you know is completely false. Um, I was raised to feel special and unique. Uh, because of them, I was sent off to university debt-free, where I was actually allowed to major in a degree such as English, which save for the whole deeply immersive analytical study of compassion in the human condition is a completely ridiculous major, especially in, <laughs> in Obama's crumbling America, and where I met two professors who would have a profound impact on my life, one of whom would tell me that You know, We were having an argument, actually, uh, and I was accusing him of feeding us exclusively depressing literature, and he would tell me that all the best literature is tragic, but that despite its tragic nature, the best stuff should make you kind. The other professor would be the first person to tell me that this idea of voice is a sham and that any notion I had of finding my own voice should be abandoned and quickly. Now, being a self-important, pampered college kid, I... I didn't do that. I uh you know, being self-important meant idolizing my own originality as a sacred thing. And so then this pursuit of the voice's treasure become almost grail-like. This notion that if I were to succeed in my pursuit, the voice found would then transform the act of creation into something as easy as opening one's mouth. My professor <laughs> could be dismissive of a voice, but that just meant he didn't have one. Uh, to, make, <laughs> to make matters worse, my senior year, I had discovered this one author who had written his critical darling his senior year of college. Uh, and to me, this sort of represented proof, proof that the talented were prodigious and that I needed to get about finding my voice and quick, or else too much time would pass, and I would know I didn't have one. Um, Well, too much time passed. Um, Things that used to be important in my life now are not. Things that used to not be important now are. I can't say I value talent quite as much as I used to. I think I now value work. Um, I write, although I would not say that I'm a writer. I've never been published. Frankly, I've been too scared to even submit. Um, But I can say proudly that I am committed to the discipline. Um, More often than not, I force myself to sit in maddening and deafening silence and pour this stuff onto a page, an accumulation of hours which has yielded very little in the way of actual words. I've been doing this for some time now, and while I cannot say that I have found a unique and singular voice, I have found some resonance in the things my professors tried to teach me. I've found that what I am drawn to when I sit in maddening and deafening silence is this intersection of tragedy and kindness. And I've found that being original is not coming up with some story where like there's a tribe of octopi and those octopi instead of normal octopi tentacles have like ivory tentacles and then there's like a uh, there's like these poacher pirates who want to get the octopi and sell their ivory on the black market. And so then the, these ivory octopuses have to like evade capture by diving deeper and deeper into the, that ain't really my thing. Um, <laughs> for me, the notion of originality uh, is not coming up with some as of yet unheard or unthought idea. For me, originality is a matter of origins, of where we come from and where we're all fated to go. I was supposed to tell a story about a rhododendron, wasn't I? Well,
4: yeah, kind of
6: set you up
5: there. You know, I, I mean, I guess I can get to it finally. Um, uh, one evening, my parents and I were out taking a drive, <laughs> and uh, we were in the proximity of my old childhood home, so we decided to swing by and see how old 84, 84 Iroquois Trail was doing. Um, my parents and I, we grew up in a stereotypical suburban neighborhood. Half-acre plots, cul-de-sacs, the whole bit. Uh, They sold the place a few years back and moved into one of those Third Reich-inspired serpentine townhouse (laughs) complexes where all the houses are conjoined and bleached white. Some of the... Residents there assert their personality with a uh, don't tread on me flag or a gone fishing sign, but really all the houses are the same Uh, Personally, I prefer the character of the old place But they're getting older and at the new spot some association mows your lawn and shovels your driveway, so I get it Um, Anyway, when we pulled up to the old house, my mother's face dropped What did they do to the rhododendron? They moved it? Kath, what are you talking about? Look! They moved the rhododendron, Kathy. Nothing is moved. Why would they do that? It was perfect. It is exactly where we put it, Kathy. Peter, it is very much not where we put it. Um, Now, credit to my mother. Technically, she was right. They had moved the rhododendron, and they had moved it from the nursery where they bought it and then planted it themselves. Not my parents, the new tenants. It wasn't our rhododendron to move or not to move. And as my parents raised their voices against one another, inwardly, I was a wreck, outwardly, I was quiet. They're starting to slip these days to forget simple and obvious things. Um, I notice it more and more. The world is increasingly confusing, and that makes them scared and angry. Um, my mother, her grand, not her grandfather, my grandfather, he died of dementia, which is a genetic thing, I think. I can't quite remember. Um, and sometimes I think that's what's to blame genetics, sometimes I think it was maybe too much falling asleep on the couch watching the voice instead of pursuing more invigorating activities, ones that would keep the mind sharp while the shoddy lemon of a body goes to pieces other times I think perhaps it was too many cosmopolitans and bourbons served neat I don't really have an answer Um, I do know how it's going to end for them uh, which is probably how it's going to end for me Uh, And although that's not unique, that's pretty tragic in my book. But as much as it is tragic, what I am enthused by is the opportunity for kindness. Um, I thought about that night a lot. I tried to ignore it, but it persisted, like an infant wailing in the corner, one that I had turned my back to uh, trying to ignore, but it just wouldn't let up. And I guess it persists because I need some clarity on the issue. I don't know if there is any. Clarity in this matter might not exist. But if I can't find any clarity, I'll at least settle for some comfort. Um, I've been working on a piece lately. Uh, That piece is not yet finished. And it has definitely been work. But it's born from that night. And despite how hard it has been to get through it, I'll keep at it because literature should make you kind. And for me, some of the greatest acts of kindness bestowed upon me have come when a stranger has decided to confront something that I, too, am going through and done the hard work to suss out some clarity or at least offer some comfort. Um, These days, I tend to value comfort more than I value being heard. Have I found my voice? I have not. But I've heard the wailing, and I'm not going to ignore it any longer. Instead, I'm going to swivel around in my chair and embrace it as my own. And then all I have to do is make it sing. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Megan. Next up, we have someone from True Tales Radio, John Tilly. He's a born and raised Texan who, after a 30-plus years career as an attorney in Dallas, recently retired to Rye, New Hampshire. He and his wife, Wanda, were married shortly before he graduated from law school and have endured together the highs and lows that such a career inevitably brings. They have three children and five grandchildren and thoroughly enjoy the lifestyle that only the Seacoast can provide. There's just one thing from Texas that I hope John doesn't leave behind. And that's his great foreign accent. (laughs) Listen to it now as he tells us his story, hearing the word.
7: Thank you, Pat, and uh, hello to family and friends in uh, Texas, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, and Washington State who are listening tonight. I was born and raised in an oil field community of white bread, whole milk, Friday night football, and Sunday pot roast. Everyone spoke English with a West Texas twang, watched Bonanza on Saturday night, and dutifully, if not enthusiastically, attended church on Sunday morning. Long hair, whiskey, and dance halls were about as welcome as the rattlesnakes that showed up every spring along the barbed wire fences. Extracting crude oil and natural gas from rocks a mile beneath the surface was the common denominator of my hometown. All local commerce depended on it. Not that any of our families owned it, we just worked it. Schools were the pride of the community, and taxes on petroleum paid for them. Teachers were among the highest paid in the state, or otherwise not one of them would take up residence in the desert and the scrub brush. Other than teachers, few parents had college degrees, but steady employment and an honest day's labor earned almost every family a degree of modest income and general comfort. Your dad was either a Ford man or a Chevy man no one lived in a grand house. Ambition was generally limited to seeking the next promotion or an hourly raise and I never heard of any family leaving town for a better life in New York City or California. If Webster defined middle-class in 1969, it would include a photograph of my hometown. We were the world or at least the world as most of us knew it. And yet, despite this insular attitude, almost every parent insisted that their children attend college, an opportunity that the parents had never had. And in that setting, in the spring of my senior year, the high school counselor asked me the most astounding and perplexing question. In a conference supposedly devoted to college options and entrance requirements, she sat back and asked, are you happy? What? No one had ever asked me that before. We weren't a family of open-ended questions. Did you finish your homework? What grades are on your report card? Did you finish mowing the grass? What time will you be home? Those were the questions I was accustomed to answering, but are you happy? Is there even an answer to that? I mumbled something along the lines of, "Mm, sure, I guess, and I went back to class. The The swirl of graduation activities eventually eased the memory of that nagging question, and I began anticipating the adventure of college. But first, I needed to earn some summer money. I found my first regular employment behind the wheel of a yellow dump truck working for the county government, among men whose ambitions had not even elevated to oil field work, but instead concentrated on paving and maintaining the many, many miles of county roads which connected the oil fields, the dryland farms, and the scrubby ranches to the town. So along with two other high school buddies, whose fathers like mine had campaigned hard for the county commissioner to get reelected, thus securing our jobs of driving dump trucks for $300 per month, I began my career of hauling caliche from a pit and dumping it out of the dump truck along the shoulders of long, flat county roads. It was hot and sweaty work. Not that it was all that hard. We showed up promptly at 8 a.m. with our lunches packed into our sturdy lunch kits. We filled a five-gallon thermos with ice and water and placed it on the passenger of the floorboard of the dump truck. We filled the gas tank and drove out into the desert where the front-end loading tractor awaited down in the caliche pit to load our dump trucks with that ancient powdered limestone which was used to pave rural roads in West Texas. Amazingly, at 10 a.m., we drove back to the edge of town to a coffee shop. Those career county employees insisted on hot coffee at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., despite the temperature usually tickling the 100-degree mark. I on the other hand drained large glasses of sweet iced tea. One of those gray hairs always paid the 15 cent charge for me. At noon we ate our lunch in the shade of the trucks and the older guys pulled their the hats over their eyes and napped until 1 p.m. when we started up the truck engines again. And that is how I met Butch. In an era of shaggy hair butch proudly maintained a burr haircut and never considered otherwise he came to work every day wearing dark blue overalls with butch stitched in red above the right front pocket tired old boots and a sweat-stained straw cowboy hat he stood no more than five foot seven but he exuded extreme confidence my grandmother would have called him a banny rooster And Butch loved to talk. Oh, did he ever. Butch decided that us three college boys needed to know all about his life and his work history. (laughs) Forbidden to leave the county barn until the whistle blew promptly at 5 p.m. each day, we were a captive audience to Butch's stories every day for the last 10 minutes of work. We heard about his years working as a roughneck on drilling rigs all over West Texas and the women he chased when he got off work at midnight. We pondered his attempt at working at a mine in Colorado until he discovered that he was claustrophobic and he hightailed it back to the open skies of West Texas. He talked on and on about his days as a ranch hand, branding cattle and shooting rattlesnakes with an old pump Winchester and then one day his horse threw him and his right leg shattered in several places. That's why Butch now worked for the county and why he limped to and from his tractor each day. When I knew Butch, his job was driving a mower tractor and mowing down the weeds along hundreds of miles of county road. Toward the end of the summer, Butch limped into the county barn, covered in dust and grass clippings, swatting the dust out of his coveralls with his old cowboy hat. Boys, he said, and we inwardly groaned, (laughs) boys, until I broke my leg, I believe I could do as much work in a day as any man. I've had a lot of jobs in my life, but I believe driving this tractor is the best one I've ever had you see boys when I'm mowing weeds along those miles of roads every once in a while I can stand up on that tractor look back over my shoulder and see that I've done some good just then the five o'clock whistle blew and we three college boys bolted for the door we were running to our cars laughing and slapping each other on the back can you believe that old fool Best job he ever had is mowing weeds? That'll never happen to us. We were college-bound. We were smarter than Butch. Well, of course we were not. And I wish I could say I immediately understood what Butch was trying to teach us. But unfortunately, it was years later. But there they were, floating in my 18-year-old cosmos. An important question and an even more important answer only a few months apart. Are you happy? Asked the counselor and Bush countered here is how to be happy. When I finally heard Butch's voice I tried to make it my own. Standing up on that tractor and looking over your shoulder is not always a pretty sight. Sometimes it's just downright ugly. Occasionally though as Butch taught us the view back there is just exquisite and that defines a contented man.
2: Thanks John. The time is 7 p.m. and you're listening to True Tales Radio broadcasting on WSCA LP, 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio in New Hampshire. Before we get back to our storytellers, I want to bring up Beth LaMontagne Hall to tell us a little bit about Long Story Short in more detail. Come
3: on. Thank you. And thank you to True Tales Radio and WSCA for hosting our three Long Story Short uh, storytellers tonight. Uh, Long Story Short is an ongoing series that puts local people on the stage at 3S Art Space to tell their own unique, funny, or moving story. Our storytellers include published authors, radio broadcasters, performers, bloggers, brewers, bartenders, and people who just plain love to tell a good story. Held every other month on the third Wednesday of the month, Long Story Short has a different theme for each event. Our next Long Story Short will be on July 20th at 3 3S Art Space and the theme will be quitting. The storytellers you will hear tonight are all long story short veterans, but we also aim to continually bring new people to the stage. If you would like to know more information about how you can become a storyteller or just attend our next event, you can find us at facebook.com slash LSS at 3S. Thanks.
2: I am Amy Antonucci, your announcer, and back to Pat Spaulding. MC. Righto.
4: Coming up next, we have a a teller from Long Story Short. Born and raised in Binghamton, New York, Christy Martino is now, or at least she says, she is now slowly going gray in Kittery Point, Maine, with her husband Dylan and two cats, Snoop and Oscar. She is co-founder of the design studio Haig & Martino, is a political organizer fighting poverty and racism in America, and according to her bio, also fighting perfectionism and the unrealistic expectations of others. (laughs) Christy is an activist, a world traveler, and in treatment. Her story tonight is titled, Any Way You Want It. Come on up, Christy. Thank you. Thank you all for being here.
8: So there is absolutely nothing like hearing your own voice amplified through a packed room of sweaty strangers, their eyes locked onto yours, mouthing the words back to you as you sing on a stage. I've never done hard drug drugs. I've wanted to, but I haven't. Um, I happen to have some serious control issues, so I haven't done that. But for a long time, I have done lead vocals. I can imagine the high being very similar. Every fiber, every follicle, pulsating, um, that euphoria that rushes up from your guts, shooting out in your fingertips just like lightning. I needed it. I've always needed to be a performer. I've always yearned for applause. The fix I got from that tightened my grip on the room, my grip on the world. I've always wanted to control how other people see me. And from the height of the stage, I was the boss. I was the MC. I was the puppet master. I was queen. Still, there's a hierarchy in music. The wise philosopher, you guys will get this, Henry Rollins, once said, there's one thing worse than being in a cover band, and that's being in a tribute band. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty accurate, I have to say, that I had a knack for uncanny mimicry. I was a shapeshifter, this heaving human voice modulator But we were no tribute band, we had standards. We were a genre band, that genre being the ultimate and promotable throwback Thursday, oh my god, that hair, 80s new wave music. So we had standards and we had rules, number one rule being we don't do Journey. So I had answered an ad for lead vocalist, ready to gig out, big range, good taste, good moves, ready to have fun. My audition found me in the 7-by-10-foot windowless studio space next to the Gowanus Canal. It smelled like socks and tacos and pigeons. <laughs> Pretty much the canal and the studio, but that's basically what New York City smells like in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to sing three songs. Blondie's Dreaming, Words by Missing Persons, and Berlin's No More Words. Though I was, I was really shaking And I was terrified. And I was having these flashbacks of my brother um, who would catch me singing right at at the moment where I was at the climax of singing Memory from Cats. (laughs) He would sneak behind a corner and point at me and laugh. And he would say, oh, you singing? You think you're a superstar? It was so embarrassing. (laughs) And I will never forget that. By the way, he's 11 years older than me. (laughs) so but you know i'm thinking about this and i'm terrified but really i was a little bit more worried about the guys that were in the room they were strangers so there was a tall lanky guy named felix he had this studded belt on and a rush t-shirt there was a guitarist with super beady eyes um behind glasses which i i don't think that i would call them glasses i think i would say the word spectacles (laughs) um and though I could barely see him over the 45 symbols that he set up, a drummer named Rich with a body wide enough to have one leg sticking out from the side of the bass drum, his ankles surrounded by the scrunched elastic of gray sweatpants, I took a quick tally. I'm either gonna crush this audition and then walk out and say thank you, no thank you, or I'm gonna be murdered and rolled up in the Persian rug and thrown into the canal. <laughs> Oh, and no keyboards. An 80s new wave band with no keyboards, okay? All right. So I launched into Blondie like a smooth swimmer and the boys were automatically in sync. We did Missing Persons and I saw Marco the guitar player give Felix a wink. Um, I was doing this amazing Dale Basio, her Brooklyn rap voice hiccuping the downbeat squeaks with every ounce of attitude I could muster. I didn't even miss the keyboards. I didn't have to. Marco's pedalboard was magic and I still don't understand how he could maneuver 45 million pedals um, at once while perfectly capturing every single noise and nuance of all of these songs through strings. It was incredible. We blew through no more words like we were ripping down a highway, our heads out the window enjoying the speed and the freedom. It was awesome and I was pretty sure I wasn't getting murdered. (laughs) i was pretty sure that i was joining the greatest 80s new wave cover band in all of new york city so being in a cover band was my second choice really i'd always wanted to make my own music i had dabbled but you know i always saw that flash of someone running around the corner and pointing and laughing at me so a cover band actually allows you to carefully construct a performance we all know the songs that get everybody dancing all crowds, every single crowd, wants to sing along to the songs, and you have control, control over that. If you're good, you're guaranteed to be loved. And we had standards, remember? No journey. No novelty songs, unless it was Nina's 99 Luftballons, but it had to be in the original German. <laughs> We did Aha's uh, take on Me once, but I nixed that immediately. I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but the lyrics are literally the worst thing that have happened to the entire universe since the poison apple in the Garden of Eden. Let me just read a masterpiece from Aha. The first line. This is really the first line. We're talking away. I don't know what I'm to say. I'll say it anyway. Magic. <laughs> but Yeah, so people like that stuff, but we had standards. Uh, We had the capability to do the full 10 minute guitar solo from my Sharona every single note. We were really, really good and we had a lot of rules. Number one, no journey, right? (laughs) So once we got about three years in, I had created and collected a lot of my own rules. I needed that guarantee to be loved. We had to be the best. I had to be the best. Sound exactly like all of the artists that we covered. And our set list, you know, could be anywhere from 30 to 60 songs a night, um, plus an encore, of course. <laughs> so, I had asked my friend who was an opera singer, I said, do you think my voice will get damaged? Oh, and how are you actually supposed to sing? Am I supposed to do something? Um, and he said, you know, you're fine, you're crazy for doing 60 songs a night, you're going to die, um, but you know, the only tricks that you need to know are drink a lot of water and keep breathing. So. Knowing that I needed that guarantee and that high of the stage, I developed a routine, a regimen, a series of superstitious and obsessively paranoid particulars. So showtime started the morning of for me. I allowed myself one hot liquid in the morning, water with lemon. The rest of the day, I would toggle between cold water and lukewarm water with lemon. I only ate dry foods, and my last consumption of solids would be three hours prior to the start of the show. I would absolutely not practice any music beforehand, but I would arrange this binder of lyrics according to the set list, glancing at all the first lines. So yes, at this point, I had a binder of lyrics, 60 songs a night, it's the last songs. I became terrified that I would forget a word here or there, or that somebody in the audience Watching my mouth would recognize that I made a mistake and storm out, turning over tables, throwing drinks in people's faces just because they're so disappointed in me. We had regularly been playing this small club in Hell's Kitchen. On the corner, there was this deli, and before every single show, I had to get two large hot teas. I double cupped the teas, and I made sure that the tea bag was securely placed on the, between the cups, so there was no flare of tea bag. Can't have that. Also, I had to have three tall bottles of Poland Spring water and promptly remove the labels because if I didn't remove the labels, I might lose my voice or fall off the stage or my pants might fall off. I don't know. It would be bad. And it was certain to happen if I didn't follow my rules. So picture me on stage. The best 80s new wave cover band in New York City. Front woman looking sexy, hairsprayed, makeup, microphone, music stand, three ring binder, a copious amount of cups and liquids on stage. <laughs> A look of tense anticipation, flipping through the binder, counting to three over and over for no reason. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. <laughs> Refusing to do mic check because everyone who does mic check looks like a fool and I'm not doing that. And I'm sure I looked really cool, like I was having so much fun, right? By the way, just to back up. I'm in a small, dirty club in Hell's Kitchen about to play some Flock of Seagulls songs, and I was behaving like a crazy person about to perform Wagner at the Met, just to back up. So at some point, there was a barbecue at my apartment in Brooklyn. I invited my bandmates, because I hated my boyfriend and his friends were the worst. They had some beer, we ate some hot dogs, my boyfriend started crying because the grill ran out of gas, that is absolutely true. (laughs) The band and I sat down together. My moods, my mood's changed a lot, and my mood at that point had sort of fluctuated towards this manic, grandiose, untouchable awesomeness, and then a very uncomfortable silence fell, and I was in no position to hear what was about to be said. And Felix was the spokesperson. Felix, who regrettably took to wearing very shiny, metallic shirts at the show, and they were just a little too small, so when he played his bass, you could just kind of see his hairy belly but um, he was doing his thing that's cool so Felix tells me I'm not doing a good job anymore I was no front woman I had no moves no energy no fun not a drop of fun hit the stage when I was on it I was absolutely livid I was betrayed I felt mutiny the audacity how dare you et tu brute. I was so mad I was so mad at him I, w- I was the queen, right? I was all the mighty, brooding apparition of Robert Smith in one moment and the tantric, prismatic echo of Gordon Sumner in the next. I did everything on earth to be the perfect lead vocalist of the greatest 80s new wave cover band in all of New York City. I had all of the necessary liquids. <laughs> Eventually, the pendulum of my mood swung back and no high in the world could hold me up and no plotted rules or rituals could guarantee that applause or love. And who did I think I was? Queen of what? Queen of Hell's Kitchen? I wasn't even Queen of 49th Street corner deli even though I'd become a mighty benefactor via double-fisted Lipton teas. I had somehow turned an opportunity to do something I loved and needed into a maniacal battle set to a Molly Ringwald movie soundtrack. I was out of control and it was absolutely no fun. I was not fired from my band. If I had been fired, I would not be telling this story because there's maybe two things worse than being in a cover band. One is being in a tribute band and one is being fired from a cover band. (laughs) So I started breaking rules. I ditched the binder and the music stand. I ditched the counting and the angry face. I kept the tease. Not all my crazy is fixable. Um, And in 2007, we ended up booking this gig in Times Square. If you're from New York and you hate Times Square, you know that it's just dreadful but there was something kind of thrilling and um, exciting about loading all of our gear into this place under this large flashing marquee just don't tell anybody I ever said that uh, we had a lot of tourists there and a lot of friends came out that night it was the first show where i secretly made a vow to god who monday through friday did not believe in but used him for favors on the weekends <laughs> i pleaded with him They said, please let me remember all the words, please don't let anyone laugh at me, and please, please let me forgive myself for the Journey song that I'm about to sing. (laughs) (laughs) We were about to break our number one rule, and you you got to understand, people uh, invariably come up to you at a show when you're in a pretty decent band. Um, Wow, you have this amazing voice. Wow, you guys were so much better than I thought you'd be. Wow, you played that fix song that you never hear. Uh, Can you guys play some Journey? (laughs) Everybody asks them. So that night, I wanted to guarantee that I would love my crowd. And we started off with dreaming, and all of us fell into sync, and, and you know, we're really in tune with each other. I don't think I got all of the words right, but it didn't matter. No one was keeping score, and no one was throwing tables. Everyone was dancing and smiling. We looked at each other, and with a nod, we launched, launched into it. Any way you want it, by journey. It was happening. And people pumped their fists so hard in the air, I swear I heard it over Marco's perfect rift. We rounded home, and as I was finishing up my unrestrained, super fun ad-libs, I felt a punch in my stomach, and I thought, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I ran off the stage and hardly made it into the men's bathroom when I projectile vomited. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I did not vomit because I dropped my ritual. I didn't vomit because we played Journey. I I actually vomited because I had Thai food in Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a really great night. Um, I screwed up a few words here and there. Um, I think my voice was probably nowhere near perfect, um, but that night it was absolutely so much fun to be in the greatest '80s new wave band in all of New York City. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Christy. Next up, we have a storyteller from True Tales Radio, Amy Antonucci. She lives in Barrington, New Hampshire, where she and her partner operate a permaculture farm. Amy spends a lot of time managing goats, bees, and ducks, and still manages to put in many hours of service right here at WSCA. A longtime volunteer for the station, she has been our announcer on True Tales Radio since its inception in January 2014. For a few years, she was also a caregiver to her elderly father. That experience provided her with lots of storytelling material. Amy will now tell us a little more about dealing with Dad and her story, Who Belongs in a Zoo? (laughs) Reprise, is that what that is? Reprise. (laughs) Reprise, okay, I should have checked with you. (laughs) Amy Antibuki.
2: Thanks, Pat. All right, I need my water tonight. Ooh, is that going to stay? No. Thanks. So, after my mother died in 2008, my father and I started talking on the phone nearly every day. This was more than we talked by far, since I'd left home uh, for college 20 years before that. He and my mother were a fiery couple. Maybe it was their Irish-Italian mix, Irene Sweeney, married to Giovanni Antonucci, we did call him John, but I don't know, but growing up, I did take it on as my job to be the responsible one, to keep them organized and contained and behaving well. Of course, this was a losing battle, and after leaving, I saw that actually they were okay with how they were. As my father would say, me and your mother, we do all right together. When on their own, they took care of each other. My mother had multiple sclerosis and was in a wheelchair, so my dad had obvious caregiving to do for her. She maintained, though, that she was the brains behind the operation, her term, and that my father would be lost without her. When she, dis- uh, when she died, we discovered that there was quite a bit of truth to that. And I got the chance to help my family get it together. If you are thinking to yourself that that sounds like an unwise, maybe even a crazy quest to take on again, you're definitely right. (laughs) But he was my father, and he was in pain, and he was in need, and he took to calling me every day. His voice on the phone, a new constant in my life. And he was actually really appreciative. He'd say to me, Amy, you're so good to me. What would I do without you? (laughs) So I took his calls. Aside from the daily phone conversations, I took him to appointments, I helped him clean and fix things in the house, actually made some headway on that mission to organize my family. (laughs) And it was well received at last. But then my father, who had been in really good health for an 80-year-old man, started to have some problems. I didn't need the water here. So it started with a hip replacement, and then the diagnosis of very high blood pressure, and eventually a vascular dementia. Against all odds and all of his wishes, I got him into assisted living, which he didn't love. (laughs) In our daily calls, um, he called it the place I sleep. And he often told me, Amy, they got me in jail here. You got to get me out? I'm an American. (laughs) (laughs) There was more and more to organize. And it started to be clear, even to me, that it was more than I could do. I was trying desperately to learn how to negotiate this new world of elder care, of nursing homes and assisted livings and memory care units and Medicare and VA benefits and so on. And I was especially struggling to learn how to talk to my father and as his mental state and capabilities changed. One night in early 2015, I called him. I asked him what he'd done that day, which is already against all dementia care rules. But he was having a good memory day, and he was able to tell me, sort of. He said to me, Amy, they showed a movie here. It was a really good movie. It had that actor in it, You know, the really famous actor, you know, the famous actor. I need more than that, Dad. Well, he's a really famous actor, and there was a woman in it. I think she's from another country, Uh, maybe in Europe. And there were animals, you know. Not really. A breakthrough. Matt Damon, he said. It's Matt Damon and the farm animals. I had actually recently seen this movie, so I could help. I said, oh, yeah, you mean we bought a zoo? That was a great movie. Anyone else seen it? It's a great movie. Great movie.
6: <laughs>
2: he answered me, right, we got a zoo. Actually, Dad, it's we bought a zoo. We, we, we got a zoo. We, we, we bought a zoo? No, no, we bought a zoo. You got Amy, spell it for me. Okay. B-O-U-G-H-T. Wait, wait. There was a V and then you said a T? No, Dad. Okay. How about this? You go to a store. You pick up an item and you bring it to the counter. You pay for it and you walk away with it. What have you done to that item? I bought it Yes, yes, that's right, and the word in the title is bought. We bought a zoo. Oh, right, I get it, we bought a zoo, yeah, yeah. Well, I like that actor, he was in that other movie, and he likes Howard Zinn, and all those animals in the movie, that was something. Yeah, I like that movie, we got a zoo. (laughs) I actually drew drew in breath to correct him again. But I paused. I heard myself trying so hard to keep him together, correcting him, trying to keep us on track, and drag him to where I was. I thought, who is behaving irrationally here? (laughs) The man with a brain disorder who cannot remember, or the woman desperately trying to make him learn a film title? (laughs) And I felt something inside me shift. It was one of those moments when you feel yourself change. And it seems like it just happened magically in an instant, but it's really because you've been working on it. You've been trying to be different, maybe for a long time. It's like the boulder you were trying to move suddenly budged. But really... It was more like the boulder I had been trying to push. I saw that maybe, after all, this one belonged where it was. (laughs) If I couldn't stand it there later, I could always try again. I knew where to find it. (laughs) But for now, maybe I could let it be. So I let out that breath, and I said, Dad, I'm really glad you liked We got a zoo.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Next up, we have our final story from, from, long story short, not our final teller, Mark Michael Adams, was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1970, back when the hospital was up on the hill where City Hall now is. For over two decades, as he's watched the city change around him, Mark has become a local personality involved in the beat poet and storytelling scene. He appears on the first Portsmouth Poet Laureate CD, Esther Buffler and Friends, High on Poetry, and on Beat Nights at the Electric Cave with Larry Simon and the Groove Bacteria. His story tonight about questioning the faith in which he was brought up is titled, the First, the First Time I Ever Stood Up for What I Believed. Come on up, Mark.
0: Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thank you to Beth for uh, having me here, and 3S Art Space, and WSA Radio, the whole crew. My story is titled How I, uh, the first time I ever stood up for what I believe in. And when I was a child, my family attended services at the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses in Kiddery, Maine. Um, And when I was five, my sister was three, my mother decided that she would leave my father, because of safety concerns. And she and my grandmother went to the kingdom hall to speak with the minister and get his advice. And he told her that the devil was in her, that this was the work of Satan if she wanted to leave her husband. My grandmother went to hysterics. My mother said, you're crazy. The minister said, if you do this, you'll be disfellowshipped and shunned. Now, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, to be disfellowshipped is like being Catholic and being excommunicated. You are kicked out. You're gone. But shunned means you will be ignored by the community. If they see you out in public, they won't act like they've ever met you. But my mom stood her ground. We were disfellowshipped. She left my father. A few years later, I started attending services with my grandparents. At First Baptist Church in Kittery. I was 10 years old. And uh, every Sunday morning, mom would wake us up. My mom did not attend. And I had my Sunday school booklet. I'd whip out my Bible, the New International Version, and finish my little homework that I had right before Sunday school. And my grandparents would pick me and my sister up, and off to church we would go. And this was my quality time with my grandparents. There was the weekly service on Sundays, and once a month there was the Saturday breakfast. And for me, sitting with my grandparents, this was quality time, but also it was very important to me. Because we were going to church, I was learning about my eternal soul. I figured even at 10, I should probably pay attention to what they're talking about. So I really listened. And one day i thought to myself i think i've i've got this figured out so after service i pulled aside the youth minister and i said i wanted to become born again he and i sat together and we prayed and i accepted jesus christ as my personal savior and i became a born again christian the whole nine yards he asked if i wanted to arrange baptism i said no no i'm not ready for that yet i need some time to let this sink in process this and left the church my grandparents were waiting out in the parking lot they asked what took me so long i told them and they weren't nearly as excited as i hoped they'd to be but they were proud of me and Then the next week we're getting ready for church i told my grandparents that as i was now born again and much older than the rest of the children in sunday school i should be able to stay upstairs and hear the full service My grandparents said, well, sure, you have to be quiet. You have to listen. I said, of course, of course. So I sat there in the pew next to my grandfather every Sunday and listened to the services. And then one day, the service is about Abraham and Isaac. Now, if you're not familiar with Christian stories, this is the founder of monotheism, where the story is God tells him to prove his faith by sacrificing his own son. So he takes his son, takes him up onto a hillside, ties him up, raises the dagger. And just before he swings, an angel shows up, says, don't do it. You've proved your faith. Sacrifice a lamb instead. So Abraham cuts the bonds of his son. His son lives. And things progress as they do. And I'm sitting there in the pew. And I look at my grandfather. I think to myself, If God tells you to kill me, would you do it? Would you tie me up? Would you pull out a knife? Would the angel show up in time? And here I am, barely 11 years old, wondering if the old man might kill me one day. (laughs) And it really got me thinking. I was that nerd in school that got into all the uh, advanced placement classes and all that stuff. Parents always told me I thought too much. Started thinking about it. How did the koala bears get from Australia to the Middle East to get on the boat with Noah?
6: (laughs) That didn't make sense.
0: And I learned in science class that a rainbow is just white light being refracted through water, condensed, uh, evaporated in the atmosphere. So telling me that a rainbow is God's promise that he'll never destroy all life on Earth again? That seemed pretty absurd. And then we learned about the Passover. This is where God punishes the Egyptians by killing all the firstborn sons. I'm a firstborn son. I'm firstborn in my generation. (laughs) Oh, great. If he decides to bring down some wrath again, I guess I'm first. (laughs) I really, really thought about this. And it meant so much to me to be with my grandfather. The man was a World War II vet. Served in the European theater. Liberated concentration camps. Worked in artillery brigade. Was put in charge of the Bonn, Germany library during the occupation. I had so much respect for that man. Obviously didn't have a father figure around. I would sit there in church and I would look at him. I'm like, this is crazy talk. I don't see how you, with other stuff that you've seen in the world, can believe this. And then one day I prayed. And I said to myself, God, if you exist, you are not what these people are telling me. I don't believe them. If you are all forgiving, forgive me. I don't believe them anymore. Then I thought about that more. If I can't believe them, who can I believe? These are the people that are supposed to teach me, supposed to be able to guide me through the world. I don't believe the teachers that are teaching my grandfather, so I can't trust him either. And that next Sunday, mom woke me up. Time to get ready for church, Mark. I sat there in bed looking at her. I said, I don't want to go. She said, why not? I said, I just, I don't want to go. She said, do you not feel well? I said, no. I just, I don't want to go. And she said, why? And I looked at her. And I said, because I do not believe what they are teaching there anymore. And she said, go back to bed. (laughs) And for that, I was thankful. But then I said, do you want me to talk to Nana and Papa about it? She said, no, 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 no. Just I'll talk to them. You go back to bed. And that actually really upset me because I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to ask them. Do you really believe that stuff? Ask all the questions that were going on in my head, ask them directly. I never got a chance to ask anybody directly, anything like that. Cause one of the first times we were, I was in the Sunday service, I'm sitting there, it's like my first time to listen to the sermon. Pastor Will telling a story. He said something I didn't quite understand. I went to raise my hand. My grandfather knocked my hand down. I'm like, well, if I'm here to learn, why can't I ask questions? It didn't make any sense. And as I said before, I thought my eternal soul was right on the line here. I should probably be clear on this stuff. (laughs) So I never got a chance to talk to my grandparents about it. Henceforth on Sundays, I just slipped in. My grandparents picked up my sister and dropped her off. No more Saturday breakfasts with my grandparents at the church. but i knew i had to do i knew i had to do that i had to stand up and i had to say i don't believe this anymore today i call myself an agnostic atheist it's not that i don't believe in anything i just don't believe what you humans tell me is absolute truth thank you
4: Thank you, Mark, for dealing with
0: the big questions. My pleasure. <laughs>
4: Next up and last up, we have uh, True Tales Radio teller Craig Wirth. He is a professional musician and songwriter who has traveled many parts of the world thanks to music. He is very actively working on becoming an interfaith chaplain and enjoys, okay, croconole crocanole. Croconol. Oh, crocanole. <laughs> what the heck is it? It's a special board
9: game invented in Ontario.
4: Okay, Canadian. Yes. He's a uh, hospice...
9: <laughs> uh, it's one of, the, one of the key points of my bio as well.
4: <laughs> yes it is. I should learn how to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, also Craig does hospice work and uh, enjoys teaching classes at Krempel Center working and playing with great people who are survivors of traumatic brain injury. Craig shares his wondrous life <laughs> with his saintly and brilliant wife Liz, songwriting son Ben, therapeutic dog Sadie, and diminutive... Dim, that's another hard word to say. <laughs> diminutive cat, Mika. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Tonight's story is titled My Inside Voice.
9: Thank you. Pat. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. I came here tonight with a... Um, with a prepared story in some uh, fleshed-out outline form. And uh, it has evolved tremendously as a, as a result of being in the presence of these other storytellers. I got, I got flooded with, uh, with stories of my own up- upbringing and the values that were kind of infused in me as a child and of unlikely mentors, of my own spiritual... Well attempts at spiritual awakening and challenging the past uh, of influences on me and family members with dementia uh, it's it's um anyway, so here we go let's find out what I talk about now uh, What I was going to start talking about was um, that I had found my or felt I had found my voice when I was about two years old. Um, I had a voice but um, and it's a voice that the rest of the world wouldn't really get to hear until recent years because it was, it was this inside voice. It was quite developed. It was very eloquent, mind you. I was brilliant inside my, <laughs> inside my head, making observations about the world around me and, uh, um, and seeing things in adults um, beyond what they would have expected, I would see, of their, their pains and their struggles and their fears. And I was processing all that i th- I think brilliantly from, from when I was very young, but I also what really sticks with me from my childhood um and it was with really good intention first disclaimer, I think that I at least and maybe some of us we tend to distill our childhood memories into our our cartoonish condensation of the you know the of what sticks out for us, and it can't possibly be the full story, but in my cartoonish condensation, I see a predominant message of um, a value that my parents put on us with really great intention. But the number one thing to be in the world was polite. (laughs) That was was above everything else. Um, And there's some good things that can come from that and there can be a tremendous closing off of voice if all you're worried about is politeness. And if you translate that into Um, this constant concern for what other people think about what your behavior is and what you say Um, and that's what I grew up with that's whatever the message intended and whatever the message that was actually delivered the message that I took as little Craig was that I was to be polite over all else so anything I disagreed with I had discomfort around um, any provocative questions I myself had uh, were to be held inside. and, I was to, and If somebody offered me um, chocolate and ketchup covered tadpoles on a luncheon tray, <laughs> I would eat them with, with a big smile on my face. Thank you so much, Mrs. Wilson, for these chocolate and ketchup covered tadpoles. Um, that's, that's the way I grew up. I'll tell you, we kids, uh, I was the eldest of five. Later we had a sixth sort of delightful afterthought sister Um, wonderful wonderful siblings but the first five of us were very closely uh, we came out close together and we were polite with a capital p we were welcome in just about anybody's home people talked about the worth kids aren't they delightful children we were we had permission to sit on aunt vera's snow white couch
6: wow
9: that that's right you probably have heard about aunt vera i'm sure um now mind you it was covered by a, a quarter inch thick plastic cover, but still still you had to earn the right to sit on that plastic which which revealed underneath this satin white couch. We could do that because we were polite. We were quiet. Um anyway, I we we were kind of liked, appreciated. We also timid as heck. If the if the front doorbell rang, this is the absolute truth. All five of us would run upstairs away from the door. <laughs> and did, I see some nods of recognition. It's really interesting. We, we'd look, and then we'd look out to see what kind of vehicle was there, who it might possibly be. And we hoped that there was some parent around to go figure this out because we weren't going down there. It's funny. It was like this oh, oh, oh quick. There's <laughs> a knock at the door, run upstairs, look out the window. What a strange thing now that I, that I think about
6: it. Um, <laughs>
9: I hadn't remembered, that wasn't part of my original story, but... So uh, I was really um, very quiet and mostly overly, the way it affected my voice in the world, overly concerned with what is, with how I'm being perceived by other people to a really a stifling degree. yeah, that's what I want to tell you about. That, that's, I f- forget this page of notes, okay, so. Um, and in sitting here tonight, I also realized there's different aspects. I had this inside voice that I was very much aware of that was full of rich detail and information that might be useful to other people, should I choose to say it out loud. Um, I remember in, uh, well, I will tell this one story. When I was in high school, We had moved from another um, school in Long Island, New York, into the Catskill Mountains in a very small rural school in Margaretville Central School. Uh, Beautiful place, small class. And I almost instantly fell in love with um, one of my classmates, Amy. And I had never really been in love before, but I thought she was gorgeous and smart and all that. And I allowed uh, to My closest friend at the time, whose family I was actually uh, staying with for a while, I said, wow, if only I could ask this Amy to the junior prom, Mm -hmm. I'd really love to do that. And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, don't be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Because she would say no. And and I'm not, I I just wanted to, I'm just telling you that that would be a cool thing. I'm not gonna do it. And he said, well, what? How will you know she'll say no? I just, please. Let's drop it. (laughs) Well, he disappears, and I think he's dropped it, but he comes back with a telephone book. And in front of me, like looking at me, I don't know how he had time to look at the book, because he's kind of keeping eye contact and glancing down. He looks up her family phone number, and he picks up the telephone, and he dials it. I'm like three feet away. And And someone answers the phone, and it's Amy's mother. And he says, Hello, um... Mrs. Johnson, uh, may I speak with your daughter? This is Michael from school. And she said, okay, and she puts her daughter on, and Michael said to Amy, um, you know Craig Worth, who sits a couple rows behind you? Um, he, wants to, he wants to ask you something. <laughs> and Michael holds the phone out to me.
6: <laughs>
9: and he hands off the phone to me, and it drops to the floor, because I won't take it. <laughs> So there's this big clam of the phone. He picks up the phone and he, and he said, uh, "Amy, uh, Craig wants to know if you'll go to the junior prom with him." And she must have said, uh, "Put him on, please." And he put me on. And I didn't say anything for like five. seconds. I'm just sitting there with a the phone next to my ear. And then, um, then she said hello, and I said hello. <laughs> and anyway, I'll shorten this a bit. But she said. Uh, do you have something to ask me? And I said, uh, "Well, yeah. Um, the thing was, there's this thing, and um, with the there's da- a uh, uh, and um. She, Do you want to go to the prom with me?" She said, and I said, uh, "Yes." And she said, "Okay." <laughs> now,
6: <laughs>
9: wow, what a he-man I was at the time! I, I really pulled that one off. So. Uh, she's she's still a friend of mine today there are many good reasons why we did not uh, last as a romantic partnership but part of it was that her father thought I was a total verbal wimp he heard of the story and I ha- I was a spineless I was not close to being good enough for his daughter that was just a part of it um, that's just one example of my quietude in urgent situations I've missed so many opportunities uh, and I'm not talking I'm not filled with regret this is an observation I missed so many opportunities because I was unable to speak up readily with my my um, inside voice and sitting here tonight I realized too there's a difference at first I was thinking of this in in um, in terms of me having an inside voice that was clear and solid and uh, very emotionally and intellectually articulate, and it was fully formed, and the challenge was that I needed to get it outside of myself. Wow. Look at me telling stories that I'm just discovering. This is great. Um, I, that, just for you radio listeners, I just got the, the, the sign that, I'm, <laughs> that I've got to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. So Here's where I found my voice. I found my voice in song. So... This voice that I had inside was was shaped by the family mantras I had. Children should be seen and not heard. Self-praise is no praise at all. Um, and and uh, those things uh, really were prominent for me. So, but what I found is as I wrote songs, that the songs contained my true voice. Sometimes talking around them did not have my true voice. It was filled with those those lessons and that concern for what people think about me. But the true voice came through the song itself. That was clean and clear and from the heart. Um, In thinking about this topic, I literally, a couple days ago, started a song. And I'm gonna do it for you now.
10: When I was a child, I was prone to sit still as a stone don't squirm don't flit politeness was the point of it the child seemed not heard i kept my words inside my head the ones i formed the ones i read the ones i cradled in my bed like a quiet tiny bird well i'm still kind i'm still polite i know what's wrong i know what's right and i know now that it's my choice To sing out loud with my inside voice As I grew up I held my tongue Afraid to upset anyone I'd nod and smile the whole day long The rest behind the wall. I polished everything I'd say Till I'd worn the edges all the way If you haven't got anything nice to say You'd better say nothing at all I'm still kind, I'm still polite I know what's wrong, I know what's right And I know now that it's my choice To sing out loud with my inside voice Most of my very best ideas Got hung up between my ears Rejection was the thing to fear I would not take the chance And each time I defer to you Which I was quite inclined to do I was offering up nothing new Just the same old awkward dance Well I'm still kind, I'm still polite I know what's wrong, I know what's right And I know now that it's my choice To sing out loud with my inside voice I'm still kind, I'm still polite I know what's wrong, I know what's right And I know now that it's my choice To sing out loud with my inside voice Thank you very much for hanging in.
2: Thank you, Craig. And thanks to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers. And to our awesome audience. Give yourselves a hand. So much more fun when you're here,
6: yeah.